Hello. You heard I was playing in Fairfax. You weren't here on the uh, climate change day. I was. I hear I played that day. Yeah. So what's it sounds loud. Or I'll just move it away from my mouth. You can't hear it? Okay. You're my barometer, so, you know. Oh. But for me, you're, you're my barometer. For you, you can be Eleanor. Where's Olivia? Oh. She's broke? Oh, you want me to pay you to get that information? Jeez, some people. How much? I don't know. Okay, officially we don't start till 7.15, which means that we have 50 seconds to go. That means I can say anything I want right now and I can't be held responsible for it. Um, My favorite, you know, if you follow the news, my favorite, I just I really wanted to tweet this one out. You know, hand somebody a piece of paper. Words, it's just words. They don't mean anything. Did you hear that one? That was a good one. Words, they don't mean anything. No, that's exactly the point of words is that they, oh, what are we going to do? Kill ourselves. It's not like they're somewhere better to move. I mean, not to offend the rest of the world, but. We are the best, so we were at one time. Anyway, um, I know people don't come here to hear my uh, op-ed piece. Um, I'm Kevin Griffin, and we call this Dharma and Recovery, which is meant to be vague enough that it won't offend anyone, but it'll draw in. I used to call it Buddhism, in the, or I was going to call it Buddhism in the 12 steps, but I'm glad it's Dharma and recovery because uh, it does make it more welcoming. And now that there's recovery Dharma, I have my lawyers working on, you know, getting, getting me a cut of that. Uh, okay, that's a joke. I have really bad jokes that people don't think are funny. And so then, anyway, so this is a club. It's used for hitting the bell. That you know what that shows. If you cling, it won't ring. Whoa! Wow! Poetry. That's like a what is that? A haiku? I mean, I'm just like it's just stuff just comes out of me. I mean, it's just amazing. Just if you hang around long enough, I might spit on you by accident. Um, so. All right, it's been a month since I've been here, so I'm, you know, worked up. Uh, let's see. Um, so it's, the, it's November, right? So that means I can talk about the 11th step tonight, like completely uh, scot-free. You know, there's no, uh, no, no reason not to. And um, so I haven't... I, I've, figured out kind of a way to talk about it tonight. But, um, you know, one of my uh, qualities, let's say, now without putting a value on it, just a quality that I have is that I tend to um, 
like things to be fresh when I teach. Um, uh, and, and I have a hard time uh, I have a hard time preparing to teach. It's very odd. Uh, since I'm a writer, uh, you would think that I'd be good at like, oh, I'll just write a Dharma talk and prepare a Dharma talk. And I'm, I, I don't get writer's block, but I get teacher's block. Or I get Dharma talk block. I just like, ah. Uh, and so then I desperately um, flail around until I come up with the topic. Wow, my cult has arrived. The mind training cult. <laughs> That's so great. I should have worn mine. I have one of those. You'd be like the team. Um, some of the people here, some of the cult members were on the retreat at Vajrapani last month. Uh, so that happens once a year. So if you blink, it it's, you know, goes by. So anyway, uh, um, so what we usually do here is um, we meditate for about half an hour. I'll give some instruction and then I'll kind of let it go, just let it be quiet for a while. <clears throat> and then, then some Q&A about practice and, uh, and then a little break and then a talk. And then there's oftentimes time for more questions afterwards. I, I, um, there were a couple things though uh, uh, this week uh, that were interesting that I actually you know, I, I read the New York Times. I'm a, you know, member of the cultural elite. And so, you know, I read the failing New York Times. So there's this great article called Can You Really Be Addicted to Video Games? If, if you're interested. It's, and and it actually turns out to be a really good article about addiction. Uh, so that got me thinking, oh, maybe I'll do something with that. And so I was going to give a talk about addiction, like sort of as a, like what is it and all this stuff. And, and I went, I pulled out, I have some books by researchers and I started like, to, and it's like, oh, it's a biopsychosocial condition. And I'm like, I already have a headache. You know, I can't give that Dharma talk, so I tried. But uh, but then there was this other one. I'm sure, some of you must have seen this. I'm sure it was like flying around on people's social media. Uh, the 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 um, the title of the piece is "How to Feel Nothing Now in Order to Feel More Later: A Day of Dopamine Fasting in San Francisco." <laughs> so, did anybody see this? Yeah, okay, some of you guys, you dopamine fasters out there, I, I can see, like, people who are like, I mean, it's, they're basically just having a retreat, right, Serena? I mean, it's just like, it's just a retreat, but they're making it into a new thing, right? <laughs> you know? I think I tweeted or something that, like, oh, I'm glad to see these people have discovered something that's been around for 2,600 years. But um, they're, like... 
fasting from their phones and from you know, media and they're, they're actually fasting from food too. But apparently their goal is that, like they think that if they don't do anything for, long, for a while, go in any stimulation, that then the next time they get some stimulation it'll be really good. Which if you've been on a silent retreat, you know, yeah, that's true. That's true. But, but sort of the idea of that's why you're doing it kind of undermines the whole point of it. Like, I'm just doing this so that later I can have a bigger thrill. Uh, you know, that's like the, you know, alcoholics who are like, I won't drink for a week so that I can, like, you know, the booze will affect me more, right? We, we did those things, you know. If I cut back on my heroin for a while, I'll be able to really... But, uh, you know, this idea of a dopamine fast is just pretty funny. There's something else in there that I loved. Uh, oh, and they were like reading books. <laughs> like it was a radical thing. Oh, what are we doing? Oh, we're just going to like, you know, stop stimulating ourselves. We'll just read books. Wow. You guys like, you're heavy. You're really... <laughs> uh, okay. All right. Well, that's enough entertainment. gotten that off my chest. Not that I have much of a chest. It's my stomach. I need to think, get something off, but let's not discuss that. Okay, so meditating. Uh, that's what we're going to do. It's, uh, I should give the talk before we meditate, but that's not how we do it here. But I do, um, Yes, you know, the, uh, I want to encourage you to um, not be attached to what happens when you're meditating. Just put in your time. That's my starting instruction. And so I'm going to say things, but if you can't do them, that's okay. Or if they don't happen. Like if I stay, pay attention to your breath and you can't figure out where your breath is, it's totally okay. Just don't leave. That's the only way you can blow it. And, and even that would be okay. I don't want to, I really don't want to, you know, critique anything here. Just starting by checking in with your body, how you're holding your body. Just making sure that you're comfortable enough to sit relatively still for a while. Feeling what your energy is like right now. 
if you're coming from a long week of work, getting through traffic. When we arrive at this serene setting, there can be this kind of dissonance with our mind state, our energetic state, and the atmosphere around us. So, whatever mood you're in, or however you're feeling right now, it's okay, you don't have to fix it. It's temporary anyway. And seeing if you can let your body soften. And maybe just even to explore what that would mean to soften your body, to kind of release tension, tightness. And also to have a sense of openness, being receptive. There's in that a quality of fearlessness that I can sit here and be with myself. Without having to control what comes up or what I feel that I can just be with whatever is there. It's okay. Even if it's unpleasant. I can also be with the pleasant and enjoy that. Not not trying to make anything of that. There's this awareness of the body and then the felt experience, which is really felt through the body. And you can use the breath as a center point of awareness. Talk about it as a concentration object, but not in the sense of trying to just block everything out and only feel the breath. It's more like a, an anchor to the present moment or a, a safety refuge to come to, place to return to when the mind or body becomes agitated we just come to the breath so mindfulness of breath means paying attention to sensations what does it feel like to breathe in and breathe out feel that at the nostrils touch of air or you can feel it deeper down in the belly 
kind of expansion and contraction, the diaphragm. The breath is so simple and also subtle and undramatic. doesn't really hold a a fascination for us. But if we connect with it, we see how it naturally calms us to just feel the body breathing. That becomes our motivation for being with the breath, just enjoying the peacefulness breathing. We talk about going out into nature in order to kind of feel serene. Our bodies are nature. Our breath is nature, here and now. We don't have to go anywhere to find nature. You don't have to control the breath or breathe in any special way. Let the breath come and go. Feel it, enjoy it. so easy for the mind to slip off, go into thoughts, stories, judgments. How we respond to that while sitting really what determines the quality of our practice, whether our practice is disturbing or calming. Mind can be quite busy, and if we're not disturbed by that, it doesn't have to create agitation. But if we get into a, a struggle with it, 
create our own suffering. Somewhat ironic that we would sit down to meditate and then turn it into another opportunity for beating ourselves up. So try to be kind to yourself, forgiving. It's natural for your mind to wander. Just gently bring it back, connect with the breath and the body when you can. And also become interesting to kind of explore the patterns of thought, not making that into a project. But if anything stands out in terms of what kinds of thoughts you're having, that can be very informative. show you where you're getting stuck, you're caught. And again, not to judge that or analyze that, but just to know, oh, yeah, there I go. We all do it. learn by observing the interaction of thoughts and feelings. See how certain thoughts trigger mental states, different moods or emotions. And we realize if we bring awareness to these patterns, that we don't have to be the victims all the time. We can actually intervene. We can step in and choose other ways of looking at our experience than the habitual judgments. an attitude of compassion or even just curiosity.
gets too complicated, just coming back again to the breath, to the body.
Alright. Uh, I hope the uh, my meditation instructions weren't over complicated. I sort of went into a little bit of a um, elaboration. You know, it's such a subtle process. I mean, we sort of have this idea of what, at least I think that when when people first learn or hear about meditation, they have some idea what it's supposed to be like, and, and particularly with mindfulness, because it's not really a concentration practice. It can be very difficult to sort of figure out what you're supposed to be doing, you know. And, um, and it, it takes some time for it to start to make sense. Because on the one hand, as I was saying, well, you know, you want to kind of keep it simple, keep yourself sort of oriented around the breath and just staying present. But at the same time, there's a lot to be gained by kind of noticing the things that take you away. But when you start doing that, that can become this proliferation where you just start, you know, one thing leads to another and you're, instead of like just observing, you're processing, you know. Think about the food processor, you know, you're grinding it all up in there and it's getting just into this mush and, and all of a sudden it's like, wait, what am, what am I supposed to be doing, right? Oh, oh, okay, I better come back to breath. So in a way, we're kind of trying to find this sort of sweet spot. I don't know, find it, but I mean, we kind of at least, you know, pass through it at times anyway, where it's kind of like, oh, I noticed that, okay but I'm not going to do anything more. I'm just going to notice it and then come back. Because the noticing, kind of, it's the, in a sense, the um, repetitive noticing, the, the, the seeing things over and over, is kind of drives home the point. Uh, oh, I, that, that really, that's what I do. I see, that's what's happening. And then you start catching certain, certain types of thought patterns. Right, the negative, particularly the negative and self-destructive or self-obsessed thought patterns, and when those start to become kind of, uh, it's like uh, you know, a a little dye gets, uh, they you know they start to kind of take on this this color, so that they sort of stand out like, oh, that one, because you start to recognize them, right? They're, they become familiar. They're not just sort of random anymore. They start to be like, oh, yeah, that, oh, that. And then you have this opportunity then to not follow them so much and to sort of let, let them go and to kind of go, oh, that's that story. Like, that's really not true, you know? Um, so that that's, uh, because that's, that's a, a process that takes time. That, that's why we, we don't really kind of get this just the first time we sit down to meditate that we need to and why it's important to, to practice regularly so you see these patterns because they, of course, the same mental patterns and thought patterns are showing up in your daily life when you're out and about and, uh, or in and, you know, not out, just in, whatever. You... you uh, the same thing starts to show up and then you're able to start to be mindful actually right in the midst of your life and kind of catch, oh, I don't need to go down there today. You know, I don't have to 
get into that mood and that story, like, thank you for sharing and just coming back to like, oh, it's a nice day or it's a nice computer, you know. So that's why, you know, it's not an easy practice really to either to teach or to learn, you know. Uh, Yeah. It's mostly about, you know, showing up and persisting. So, uh, any questions uh, so far about meditation or anything that you're having challenges with or uh, would like more elaboration on? Oh, so you use those images in your meditation? Absolutely. I see. Yeah, yeah, that's nice. Uh, you know, I was I was kind of experimenting with something like that in teaching loving kindness meditation. Um, you know, when when you the traditional way of of practicing loving kindness, the teacher will say, you know, start by bringing to mind somebody who you hold very dear and kind of evoke a feeling, that feeling of warmth and caring in you. Uh, and I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe that, if that doesn't really work for somebody, maybe for them thinking of a, a natural, a place of natural beauty that they, that they love, you know, could also evoke loving kindness because loving kindness isn't, doesn't have to be directed towards another being. Can also be directed towards nature, or it can just be a feeling. Yeah, just don't get attached, Jeffrey. No, but as you shut down your brain. Yeah. All right, if you say so. Yeah. Okay. Right. There's an expression that I'm trying to think of out of the suttas, calming the, uh, I can't think of it, it'll come to me. Anyway, other, other questions? Other questions? Yes. So, uh, it's the first time I've ever tried meditating. Oh. Uh, also. <laughs> I was getting, you know, I wanted to say, I'm sorry, you know, you <laughs> wish you would have found somebody more, you know, go ahead. friends so yeah. <laughs> I figured yeah. not the only one yeah. um, a lot of things that have made me angry uh-huh. is that what is that good <laughs> like, like, is that what I'm supposed to be 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I don't think that's necessarily productive. But um, right, but so one of the things to understand about meditation, it's like the you know the old data entry uh, teaching, <laughs> garbage in, garbage out, right? So you know whatever's been in your mind, you know that's what. That's what appears, and so it's just—it's not like, oh, I'm meditating, and so this is now I'm in a different mind, you know, and I can, and my past and my memories and my experiences are those are all I put them all aside because I'm in this bubble called meditation. That's not what it is. It's really the opposite of that. You're thrown into the middle of your mind, and and then the stuff that's there, and particularly the stuff that has a lot of um, juice. Wonderful. But the things that have a lot of juice, like whether it's anger or fantasies, uh, you know, pleasant or unpleasant, you know, those are the things that are going to tend to hook you and are going to tend to show up. So the kind of the, the starting point of practice, I mean, we have this simple thing of like, just when you notice that your mind is caught up in whatever, that you try to come and feel the breath. Right, so you try to get so, so you can feel your breathing. Just because the point of that is not because there's something special about the breath, although it's pretty wonderful. But you know, the point of it is the breath is something that you can only feel in the present moment. So if you're feeling it, then your mind is by definition present. Right. So that just gives you kind of a grounding point, and so. You know, your mind wanders, you're caught up in that stuff, and it's like, and then, wait, I'm doing that. Oh, I'll come back to the breath. And so it's a very gradual training where you sort of learn to be more with the breath than with the stories. Some, you know, more or less. It comes and goes. But where we're trying to kind of get to then is not so much, oh, I'm only feeling my breath and there's no more thoughts, but rather, I'm not really disturbed by the thoughts. The things come up, but they don't hook me. It's like, oh yeah, that story, oh. And, and, and so it's really about holding those experiences, being, letting the anger come up without like, you know, going into the story about the anger and how, yeah, I need to go call that person right now, you know, and let him, you know, hear let them have it, you know, it's rather, we just kind of like, oh, well, there's that, you know, and and then starting to notice things like, how does that feel? Oh, that's painful. Oh, so the insight that comes out of that is anger hurts. Maybe I should work on being less angry, you know, whatever, you know, whatever that might mean. I mean, I'm going to mostly not work on being less angry, but I'm going to try not to be attached to my anger and think like that's a really useful thing. It's like, no, actually it hurts. So there might be some information in there. Like, I think I should talk to that person. Not yell at them. <laughs> Maybe I should, talk, you know what I'm saying? So, and, I, and I'm not saying you need to figure all that out every time you meditate. But 
But this kind of gets processed in a way, in a natural way. You don't have to set out to do it. You just kind of keep showing up and follow the simplicity of it and let this process kind of unfold that you start to see things naturally through it. I don't know. I hope that helps a little. Yeah, starting point. You know, it's so much like recovery, you know, just showing up. That's kind of giving away the the lead on my Dharma talk tonight, which uh, was sort of what I was talking about at Vajrapani about showing up, right? If you remember. Yeah. Yeah. We we actually have some microphones back here, but there's usually someone who is in charge of it. Yeah, that's better. Thank you. When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron. Yes. Uh huh. Right. Well, we can overcomplicate anything, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think if it doesn't work for you, then it's probably not the thing to do right now. You might try some other time; it might start to work for you, you know. But I'm not a great believer in oh, there's a practice that everybody should do. I think it's about exploring different practices and finding something that seems to fit you, and keeping an open mind. That because we don't want to just do a practice because it feels good, you know, like that because that can become an escapist thing. But but I think the the noting practice does have a because there's this sort of mechanical element to it. So what she's describing is this classical, actually, I think more Burmese, although it's adopted in different traditions. That that when you notice that you're thinking, you make a mental note: thinking, thinking, or I'm planning or remembering or anger or, you know, and you just make a mental note of what's happening in your mind. And it's kind of a way of depersonalizing the experience and, and, and objectifying it, taking it from the subjective, like it's about me to, oh, it's just a thing that's happening in this mind, you know, so that it has a value in that way. But because it is sort of mechanical, it can start to feel it, it 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 doesn't have sort of an organic flow to it, uh, which I think is more appealing to some. It, it depends. I mean, it, it's there's a lot of people that do it. You know, it's taught a lot. Breath is affected by oh, your cry. Uh-huh. So, so you kind of get get opened up when you yeah. Right. Yeah. I do have experience with that. I wouldn't worry about managing the breath. 
uh, just try to be with the feeling. You can kind of breathe with the feeling, but not focusing on the breath, but but that um, so that the so that it doesn't get constricted, like you know you're trying to hold it in that you kind of can open. And so when I say breathe with the feeling, it's like really you know the breath might get a little deeper just naturally, and just letting that come through. It's a it's really a gift to be able to open like that and for that to come through. Um, and it's a you know it's a traditional kind of stage heart opening it's a kind of you know in the chakra model you know the different sort of energy centers in the body that when when you start to cry that's supposed to be like the heart chakra opening which is you know beautiful i had that happen after my first retreat and uh it it, it was it really it felt like a gift as much as it was difficult and surprising um because it really revealed to me how shut down I had been for, you know, about 15 years, you know, at that point. Uh, and so so it, it really allows, uh, I mean, it, I don't know exactly where it's coming from for you, but, you know, there's there's a way in which I think it's, it's really, uh, it's partly about, yeah, certainly opening to our own wounds, you know our own suffering, but it's also kind of opening to the this broader sense of of compassion, sort of real, almost touching the suffering of the world. Uh, when when there's nothing like in our mind, it's just like our heart opens up and we're feeling that side of the that, that aspect of of the world. Yeah. Thank you. Some great questions. Thank you all. Let's let's take a about a ten minute break and we'll come back and talk some more. at the step 11 and, and, uh, and um, kind of a, a little bit as two kind of different things but we'll see how they how they come together you know as I've often you know said and was probably I probably had to put this in one breath at a time uh, that when I first went to AA and uh, saw the steps. You know, I, I had been practicing Buddhist meditation for a while and, um, and uh, like just about every, anybody who comes to the program is skeptical, right? But I, I, I was skeptical and arrogant, which maybe isn't that unusual either, but I was, I was spiritually arrogant and uh, thought that, you know, my Buddhist practice and everything really made me much more advanced than these 
lower beings, you know, who are just following these weird steps, you know. And so, you know, I was reading through the steps, like, whatever, this stuff, uh, what these people are talking about. Then I got to step 11, and I was like, oh, they have meditation here, okay. So maybe I can teach them something, you know. Uh, No, I I, I didn't think that, but I I, I thought maybe I can get something out of this or, you know, maybe I'll fit in a little bit. Um, You know, I felt more at home seeing that. But uh, as anybody who's, you know, been part of a 12-step program knows, there's very little information about how to meditate uh, in the 12-step literature, which is, of course, one of the reasons that I've set out on this uh, sort of, uh, I don't know if I want to call what I do a journey, but, you know, this... Uh, work of of, uh, of trying to blend dharma and recovery. Uh, so so to come to to start with uh, talking about uh, meditation from a, a Buddhist viewpoint, uh, uh, probably the the most direct and traditional way to talk about it is to take the three elements of the eightfold path that are about meditation, and they are right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. So, so if we think of the main, what meditation itself as a as just a practice in itself, not all the implications of it, but just what we are working with is we're working with effort and mindfulness and concentration. And each of those words, though, require quite a bit of sort of exploration to kind of understand them. Concentration particularly, I think, is is misunderstood. Uh, and so the phrase calm abiding, I find to be a helpful one, if it's not a little too mushy. The idea being that rather than concentrating like, okay, I'm just paying attention to my breath, that's it. But rather that there's just sort of a calmness. I'm just sort of here, I'm, I'm grounded, I'm settled. That, I think, is a better image. But before I get to concentration, I want to start by talking about effort. So effort is uh, really one of the trickiest things about meditation. And and many of the questions that I get about meditation, probably most of the ones tonight, were in some way about effort. How how do I do this? How do I get this to work? you know, I'm falling asleep or I'm restless or um, how do I stop my thoughts? And, you know, in ordinary activities, effort is the thing that we apply. We just work a little hard. If it's not going well, we just try harder, right? But for anybody who's practiced any degree of meditation, you know that when you start to try harder in meditation, it gets worse. And wow, that's, that really creates a conundrum, right? Well, if it's if when I try harder, it gets worse. How, what's going to happen if I don't try? You know, that doesn't seem like that's going to work. Like, what does it mean that when it says right effort? This is like kind of one of the central questions of practice. And these three elements effort, mindfulness, concentration, really can't be uh, totally unraveled from each other because right effort requires mindfulness. 
the only way you can know if the effort you're making is too strong or too weak is if you are mindful of it, if you are aware of it. So they're not really separate, these things. So one of the classic ways that the Buddha describes effort is as this put, getting an instrument in tune. You know, that it's not too, it's not sharp, it's not flat, it's right in tune. So, so his sort of the image is like you're you're tuning it too high. That's like you're t- trying too hard. You know, you're getting tight. Right? You're tuning it too low, and you're just kind of getting you know too laid back. Right? You're not really doing anything. So try, we're trying to find this little space, which which kind of corresponds to the the Buddha's description of his path, which he calls the middle way. And that's kind of we're trying to find this middle way of effort. How do we know we're making, we're too tight? How do we know we're too loose, right? And what is too tight and what is too loose? Okay, I'm not going to say anything about that. That was a bad joke, but I'm just not going to make it, so just be proud of me. The, the only way you can know is if you're paying attention. And the fact is that sometimes... You need to really work hard. And sometimes you really need to kick back. And so you really learn what right effort is not by reading it in a book or by having somebody tell you, but by practicing over and over and over and starting to notice what happens when I do this. What happens when I'm feeling like this and I do this? Oh, that didn't work. What if I try that? Oh, that's better. Okay, I'll try to remember that. Oh, what about when I'm feeling like this? How about if I try that thing that I tried on the other thing? Oh, no, it didn't work. I'll need to make it... You know, so it's this experimentation. It's trial and error. It's really why I say that ultimately we are each our own meditation teachers. Nobody can really teach us meditation because nobody can get inside our brain to say, hey, no, stop that. Get over there. You know, quick. You know, there's nobody there. Right? Sorry. Even a guided meditation, I mean, they're still not in there. So it's really through our own uh, exploration that we find out what right effort is. There's a, there's a phrase, in, you know, to, to make it even more sort of annoyingly uh, cryptic, uh, it's a famous uh, book, Buddhist book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Suzuki Roshi, who is the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center. He has a, a, a short little teachings, and one of them is on right effort. And at some point in that, he says that, uh, that, that that's the, uh, that's the, that finding right effort is the secret of practice. And then it's like, period. And you're like, okay, so what's the secret? And it, but he's like, no, he's, he can't tell you. You know, on, on this recent retreat, though, uh, I kind of came up with this uh, uh, claim that has no scientific validity, which is that 90% of effort is showing up. You know, it's not and I mean in meditation effort, that if you 
sign up for the meditation retreat, go to the retreat, go to each of the sessions on the retreat, you've done 90% of the work. If you come to Spirit Rock, if you sit in your seat, wait till the bell rings, you've done 90% of the work. I don't know about the percentage, but I definitely believe that it's a very high percentage of the work is just showing up, which of course has a, a resonance with with recovery, which we talk about as being showing, you know, suit up and show up. And these days in California, you don't even have to suit up. You, know, you just throw on anything, you know, and just show up, you know. Keep it simple. If somebody shows up at a meeting in a suit, you know, you're like... Is the FBI here for something? <laughs> but this is the biggest issue. I mean, when, when one of the major questions that I get about meditation is, how can I establish a daily meditation practice? Uh, what can I say? Meditate daily. <laughs> that would be the best way to do it, you know? <laughs> You know, and, and you know, and that's it, right? We know. I mean, uh, sometimes I wish I could prepare these lines, you know, so that I could actually like deliver them. But they they arrive, and I, you know, sometimes they work. But this is the challenge that people have, and and so so. You know, I'm still on effort, by the way, so <laughs> could spend the whole evening on effort easily. Could spend the month on it because what we actually see then is that effort is tied in with intention or motivation, which is another aspect of the eightfold path. Right? Showing up. What makes it possible for you to show up? What gets you to, you know, to skip the whatever you like to do in the morning? Uh, you know, and get up early or put that aside and put the time into meditation. Well, it's the motivation, right? It's that intention. You've got to want it, right? And th- again, that's the same thing that keeps you showing up in your program, too, is the motivation. Motivation, I think, is largely driven by uh, suffering. So, you know, I mean, why don't young people, you know, I mean, kids, like, why are they not really interested in in uh, meditation? Because they haven't, you know, realized that running around and finding stimulation doesn't actually bring happiness. You have to have experience in life to learn. Oh, just trying to find, you know, connect moments of pleasure, moment after moment after moment, continuously doesn't actually work, and and it just creates more stress and well, I'm going to try a different method. I'm going to try this thing called meditation. Um, okay, let's maybe leave effort for now uh, and kind of put it at that kind of, if we can show up and then apply mindfulness to the quality of our effort, that that's kind of a good, I think, framework for it. If you know, Okay. Mindfulness, um, mindfulness is complex and subtle. You know, uh, 
Joseph Goldstein has a book called Mindfulness, a beautiful, fantastic book, really probably his uh, greatest work, and he's done some great books. In it, he says something like, defining mindfulness is like trying to define a word like love. It's so uh, layered and complex and can be seen in so many different ways. So let's see if we can take it apart a little bit, uh, like at least find the sort of main elements of it. So uh, obviously what's what's sort of uh, well-established and people know is, okay, mindfulness is like trying to be present. Okay, that's kind of a starting point. Trying to be present and aware uh, and kind of intentionally aware. And I'm going to direct my attention to certain things. I'm going to try to be aware of my sense experience, you know, being aware of my body. And I'm also, I'm going to be aware also of my emotional experience. And I'm going to be aware of my mental experience. Like, what are my thoughts? You know. But that's not really enough, being aware of them. So people talk about, well, trying to be non-judgmental. So that's part of it. So there's a quality of kind of, with that awareness, there's kind of an acceptance. So these days people talk more about uh, bringing kindness into their mindfulness. So, so yeah, that acceptance is, is kind of a gentleness. So it's not like I'm going to be aware, like, you know, aggressively aware or, or judging myself, again, for not being aware. But rather, okay, I'm going to kind of have this quality of trying to be present and aware on these different of these different uh, realms of experience, body, mind, emotion. Not sure where, well, emotion kind of, you know, blends body and mind, I would say. But but I'm going to try to be aware, but but in a way that doesn't sort of add tension to them. You know, uh, like, oh, I'm having that thought, I shouldn't be having that thought, or why am I having this feeling? You know, it's rather... Oh, there's this feeling. Oh, can I be gentle with it? Oh, there's this thought. Wow, that's a troubling thought. Um, you know, so there's, we try to bring this kind of quality of kindness to it. There's also like a critical element, investigation, of trying to see, and this is where it gets complicated, and also can the mind can get busy with it, but... Over time, this is what I think is most transformative, is we start to make connections. Right? That's when we start to see that anger, for instance, oh, what does anger feel like? Oh, that's unpleasant. And we realize, oh, that's not really useful. Even, you know, even in the AA literature, they talk about, you know, that we sort of, I forget what the phrase is, but about how we can't afford sort of self-righteous anger anymore, you know. And and so the Buddha says very much the same thing, but, but he, he doesn't say it in terms of afford to. He just says, you're creating your own suffering. So, so this is a, a typical example of what we learn through investigation, through mindfulness. So investigation, although maybe not technically part of mindfulness, I don't think mindfulness is really fulfilled unless there's this quality of investigation, which is kind of a curiosity, like, how is this working? What is really going on? Because if we can say that mindfulness, that the question behind mindfulness is, what is happening? 
You know, that's kind of the basic question of mindfulness. What's happening right now? Well, that's a very deep and layered question. You can say, oh, what's happening right now is that I'm sitting here in this place called Spirit Rock and I'm listening to a teacher. Okay, but there's other layers happening, right? There's also your, your feeling life, your mental life, and what you're doing with that. So we start to make uh, all these connections. And that's where wisdom and insight starts to come. Not necessarily in a blinding flash, but that we just start to make connections, which then start to change how we approach life. And that's actually where I want to go to step 11. But I'm gonna, So I'm going to hold it there with mindfulness and come back to this idea when I get to step 11. So just to now talk about concentration. As I said, you know, another word that's really kind of misunderstood. And there are uh, certainly layers of concentration. There are states of concentration where someone can get very still and very uh, focused and um, kind of deeply quiet. Uh, those take a lot of time and usually a lot of quiet time, longer meditation retreats. For most of us, although there are some people who settle more easily, for most of us in daily practice or even shorter retreats, you know, what we call concentration isn't some state of just stillness, but it's more of a settledness. And coming back to what I said about calm abiding, I... I actually think about the state that we call concentration as being being more physical than mental, which is absolutely not how we think of it in our language. Concentration in the English language is very much a mental state, right? So we have to uh, sort of compl- really uh, rework our understanding of what, what we're talking about. So when I'm meditating... When I feel my body seem to settle, and it's just uh, oftentimes it, it can feel heavier or it can feel lighter, but there's just this different, there's a, a, a physical shift that happens, a felt shift. I'm not sure what it is. I'm sure some researchers have looked into it, but it's a felt experience. My mind might still be kind of doing stuff, but I can tell that I'm getting the that quality, that that uh, b- the benefit of like peacefulness now, is that my body is at peace, even if my mind's a little going a little bit, because it's really in our body where the agitation and the disturbance comes. Uh, and I would just kind of put that out for you to explore for yourself, uh, because I think that the pursuit of a quiet mind just it really is a. It's not a helpful one. It's one that causes us more trouble trying to quiet your mind. You know, I was talking about this at the beginning of the evening. This, we're sort of setting up this idea that there's this noise and there's, then I'm going to stop that noise by suppressing it, by you know, just pay attention to my breath, just go away thoughts. You know, it, it, it's this uh, sense of conflict that, that I don't think is productive at all. So if I think of concentration as much more, can I calm my body? Then my mind will tend to calm out of that. Whereas if I can stop my thoughts for a second, 
doesn't necessarily do that much to my body. So it's it's more effective a lot of times, I think, to, to work on just settling the body and let that be the basis for your concentration. So, uh, I think maybe that's enough about that. There, you know, yeah. So, so to shift over now to step eleven, uh, which for those who want to be reminded or don't aren't familiar, says we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. Now, to really, uh, it's it's a, a very kind of particular step in terms of what it tells us to do, you know, um, and and sort of demanding in a way, uh, and I think also really confusing. <laughs> uh, if we can, you know. Uh, I, I need to say anytime I say one of the steps that, that has the word him in it that that I, I reject that uh, gender uh, for the steps that that I don't uh, and calling God a, a he is uh, you know really un, unhelpful and and inaccurate <laughs> in my mind not that I'm an expert on God but uh, because I think the word God can still be useful if we don't you know, turn it into this being, particularly a male being or any kind of gendered being. But when we just think of God as, as something more, uh, uh, well, I, I, there is no word. <laughs> so uh, I'll talk myself into a corner if I try to. Uh, I think of God as the, all the powers that are basically, all the powers that exist in the universe. The forces and energies of the universe, which are both natural and uh, and spiritual, if we use the term spiritual. I mean, for instance, impermanence, like the fact that everything is constantly changing to me is an aspect of God. Now, is that a spiritual idea? I don't know. Impermanence, just like a reality. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't have any particular... Uh, you know, uh, connection to to any philosophy or religion. It's just, and it's not science exactly. You know, it's not physics. It's just everything is constantly changing. Uh, it's physics. Yeah. All right. So, but where I want to get to in the step is that critical part where it says asking for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And, and there's a lot of ways to approach this. But, but what I'm particularly interested in, in talking about tonight and, and maybe bringing out of this is this connection to what we learn from our mindfulness practice. So if we are applying mindfulness. So if we, we're seeking through meditation to improve our conscious contact with reality. Okay? Just, we'll just say reality. With, with the way things are. 
I'm trying to be more present, right? And there's no he here. And there's no being who's got information that's going to be transmitted to us. It's rather that through our deepening awareness and investigation, we are going to come to understand ourselves and our world and others in a way that is fulfills the knowledge uh, you know of that that God let me step back that that through that investigation that we get guided to make different choices in our life to live differently so for example going back to the anger example which is a, a, a good one because it's so strong and obvious we see it we start to understand through our investigation that when we lose our temper, when we get angry, that we cause ourselves suffering. So that's information we got. And because we see that suffering, and suffering is a motivation for change, we say, you know, I'm going to try not to get so triggered. I'm going to try to let go of this instead of feeding it. Now, my awareness has given me the knowledge of his will for us, right? The knowledge of God's will, of, the, of, my, of the, my understanding of reality has shown me that if I don't want to suffer, I, don't, I should not get angry. And because I've got this awareness, it's given me this power to make different choices. To say, oh, Anger is coming up. I'm aware of it. And I know, I have learned that that causes me suffering and I can let it go. So I've now actually done step 11 by applying mindfulness. The knowledge of God's will is seeing how suffering happens and how to let it go. And the power to carry it out is the awareness itself that gives me that power to change. Whew. That makes sense. Yeah. It kind of it's kind of interesting, right? I think it's kind of uh, it kind of works. You can thank my dog because I was walking him when I came to that. But this then really. What I'm, I'm hoping is helpful about it is a couple things. One is, in a way, it illuminates what mindfulness actually does for us. And it also helps us to deal with and put aside the theistic aspect of step 11 and still make sense of it without it seeming like, oh, I'm waiting to hear God's words. Like, Kevin, now is the time to do it. You know, it's like... It's not going to happen, right? With the burning bush, kind of. So it allow and and because as I was saying, like mindfulness and trying to pull apart how mindfulness works can kind of get like confusing. That you know, step eleven is pretty simple. You know, praying for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. All right, 
you know. But we, those of us who aren't theistic run into this wall about the language. So if we apply mindfulness to it, that mindfulness reveals the, what I need to know. You know, that's where the knowledge of, of it's not the will of God. It's not the will of anything. You know, but it's like what we need to do. Because that's what the step is sort of about. That's what we get from the step. Like, I'm supposed to like get in, I'm spo- this step is supposed to help me to know what to do next. How to sort of make decisions. How to make, how to move forward in my life. Like, I'm going to know God's will for me. Right? Well, the way you know that is becoming more aware, seeing how your mind works, seeing how suffering arises, seeing how to let go of suffering. So it's a neat little, I think, uh, way to connect them. So, now we have some time left. If there anybody wanted to ask a question, Maybe I can maybe I can clarify some things or uh, make any comments. Wow, mindful. Well. And since we're all enlightened now, we can leave early. <laughs> I'm not really sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, yeah. When we are introduced to meditation, I, I think we really want like clear guidance, like what am I supposed to do? Because, you know, you sit down, you close your eyes, I'm just sitting here, you know, what, you know, what am, what's supposed to happen here? And so I think it's helpful to have some simple and specific instructions about what to do. You know, just like count your breaths is one instruction. Or, uh, you know, repeat in, out with your breath. Or as we talked about before, note when your mind wanders, note that your mind has wandered. You know, thinking, thinking. Um, and those are all tools, um, but they aren't effort. 
the effort is what you do with those tools. And you can use those tools skillfully, like, or you can use them unskillfully, like you can grip onto them. The, but as I said, you know, the distinction kind of, uh, the, the thing that kind of distinguishes meditation from other tasks is that you can't just power your way through, you know. You can't just like, like go to the gym, just, you know, put it, you know, slam, you know, keep lifting more weights, get stronger and stronger. You know, it just, it's, I'm trying to think if there's kind of a correlation. Well, my, the the way I describe this oftentimes is seeing a, uh, you know, world-class athlete. I think baseball, I like baseball as an example because baseball players are, a lot of the time, they're not doing anything. And they, you see that they are very intentionally not doing anything, like being relaxed. Like when a baseball player walks up to bat, you know, they typically kind of, you know, they tap the dirt off their shoes, you know, say hi to the ump. You know, the first time you go up to bat, oh, it's always a good idea, by the way. Say hi to the ump, be friendly with the ump, you want him on your side. Yeah. You know, and they kind of look out, you know, and they're, I mean, you, and, and, and then, you know, somebody's going to throw this small, hard object very close to them at 90 miles an hour. You know, and, and how are you going to do that and expect to hit that thing? I mean, even to see it, so hard enough, but to hit it and make it go somewhere. You know, takes a kind of effort. But if you go up there like I'm going to kill that thing, you know, is that my microphone making all that rattling? Sorry. Yeah, it's supposed. This is. Oh, over here. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. You know, you go up there overly aggressively. You know, you're just going to. So there has to be this kind of calm. Now, of course, that comes from a whole lot of training, right? You have to do all the work before you go up and do, and expect it to to go like that. But even in that training, if it's you know in a kind of grasping way, it's it's never going to really work. There still has to be a kind of calm in the, in that effort, and uh, yeah, that's very much that meditative quality that we bring. Hi. Um, when you were talking about concentration. Uh huh. What if the body's in pain? Well, if, uh, high blood pressure, I would say go to a doctor. Um, but, I mean, I'm not. I'm, I don't mean to be facetious, but I mean, no, you, you know, whatever's happening in the body, we can bring awareness to it. And if we bring a calming attitude and awareness to it, that's going to tend to be healing to any state. I mean, this, you know, meditation is prescribed for people with high blood pressure, right? But physical pain, 
yeah, for, for actual pain. The, uh, I mean, I don't want, like to be prescriptive about this because if there's chronic and intense pain, it's something that meditation's gonna not necessarily gonna be able to deal with. But if it's if it's you know intermittent and a manageable level of pain, then bringing awareness to it can help in that the we the body tends to tighten around pain, which exact sort of actually exacerbates it, tends to make it worse, and so that if we can actually soften around it and and explore it, uh, that is to say, take our attention into it and and focus on it, see see how it see if we can sort of study it. What you discover when you when you explore any sensation is first of all that they're not sta- it's not stable or solid and because the, the mind thinks when there's pain like you think I have a headache you think there's this solid thing but when you take your mind to it and focus, like your attention to it you see oh it's it's moving it's not like a solid thing so that in itself can be somewhat freeing because you realize oh it's not a solid thing. It's in motion. It's it's shrinking and growing, like it's as or moving around. And then we can also, if if you keep looking at the relationship, your relationship with pain, you see that the the mental reaction to it is extra. And this is what the Buddha called the second arrow. He said that with physical pain, the first arrow is the pain itself. But then our mental reaction to it when we try to when we're you know trying to get away from it, that's like adding more pain to the pain. And that so that if we can let go of that second arrow, we actually reduce the problem. And my own experience of it is that the when I'm less fearful about pain and more accepting of it, that it's oftentimes less of a problem. Uh, that that um, there's a um, what. There's kind of a spectrum on which sensation happens. And on one end of the spectrum is extreme pleasure, and the other end is extreme pain. When you start to explore sensation, there's a point at which your mind decides that it's pain. You know, right up till then, it just might be like a minor irritation. But at some point, it crosses this line into what we call what you call pain. When you investigate that, and when you bring this quality of sort of uh, letting go of aversion to it and exploring it, your, your capacity for being with it 
you know what you call pain actually you know you, it kind of becomes your, your capacity expands and if you're you're able to hold and be with with a higher degree of unpleasant sensation uh, through the through the mind and, and and I'm not really talking about like some super mental superpower or anything it's really just by observing it and working with it working with the aversion and breathing with it and allowing it and and kind of going okay that's unpleasant but it's okay I don't need to you know and at a certain point you you know uh, well I was going to say I don't need to take a drug to fix it and at a certain point you go oh now I could use some medication you know and it's interesting because uh, I've had I guess you would say chronic back pain uh, for a long time and and um, and uh, not constant, but you know it comes and goes, and it's typical that when I get up in the morning, my back will hurt, and after certain activities, and, and certain activities I don't do anymore because of, of it, the things I never liked, like running. But so I'm grateful I don't have to. But um, in 2006, I had a real attack where it just like I went into severe spasm and uh, you know I went to the doctor and they gave me Vicodin which you know for me that was like free drugs I get to take these prescriptions and because I you know do apply mindfulness to everything I can I noticed very quickly that what was happening was that I the Vicodin was not reducing the pain. It just made it so I didn't give a shit, you know. And I, that's so I realized what it's doing is working on my mind. And I can work on my mind. I don't need a drug. And and of course, you know, the other thing is, as soon as I took it, I was like, oh, now I feel normal. Oh, yeah, which is what a drug addict says when they take a Vicodin, you know. Normal people don't say, now I feel normal when you take a Vicodin, right? So it was just like an immediate reminder, like, I can't do this stuff. Like, this is not okay. But but it just was so interesting to me that what it was doing was it just was like, it, it still hurts, but I don't care, you know. Because uh, I feel so happy, you know, <laughs> or whatever, drugged. And, and so that was very telling, because it's the same thing I'm talking about, how the mind is a big part of my relationship to, to any pain. And again, I don't mean to say like, oh, you can overcome any amount of pain with your mind, but you can definitely expand your capacity. You know? and, and there's no doubt that uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of the opioid crisis could have been solved if people had been treated with mindfulness rather than, well... If they'd been treated with mindfulness, there wouldn't have been an opioid crisis. But, but a lot of the pain that people have tried to apply drugs to could have been dealt with, you know, in more skillful ways. To state the obvious, yes. Last question. What you just said Is there anybody out there who's thinking you got to be crazy? Because I'm just wondering. Okay, I just wanted to check. At that time, I believed if I thought it, it was true. Yeah.
Yeah. Well, and and that's why you know when I say concentration, it's like it's a it's a physical thing. There, there's not it's not like oh there's this brain up here, and it's like you know holding strings like the puppet of our, of our body or something. There's this you know everything is part of the same system, all works together. Great. So um, before we close. I wanted to mention that in December, uh, besides being here as usual on the second uh, Friday, I'll also be here for a day-long meditation and recovery retreat on December 27th, which is a Friday. Uh, And it's called, uh, and it's one I've been doing for several years. We call it Keep Coming Back. Uh, And then it has a subtitle. But, that's you get the idea. It's kind of an end of the year, uh, beginning of the year day for people in recovery to kind of reinforce our program and, and kind of refresh our practice and our program. So I hope that people will come for that day. I think it. I'm not. I think it's going to be in this hall. Uh, we kind of talked about doing it on different days, and I think the, having it in this hall or having it on that Friday allows us to have this hall. So hopefully you have the day off and you can come. Also, for those who don't know and might be in the East Bay, uh, I also teach a similar class the fourth Tuesday of each month at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery. And all of that's on my uh, website, kevingriffin.net. Also, some of my books, my self-published books are out there, my workbook and my uh, book, Living Kindness, and I will also mention that uh, as, uh, if you're not uh, haven't friended me on Facebook, where which I've been sort of avoiding Facebook lately, tweeting more. Uh, but anyway, um, that uh, I've been working for the last year and a half on a book uh, called Buddhism and the Twelve Steps: Daily Reflections. Three hundred and sixty-six pages of stuff. <laughs> And uh, I just finished the first draft of that, so uh, hoping to get it out in the spring, but it might take a little longer. It it requires a lot of editing. Whoever wrote it really just kind of made I'm having to clean up a lot of stuff that he did. So, um, but uh, just as a, you know, warning that's coming. So uh, let's just sit uh, for a minute or two and some moments of reflection. I'm just appreciating that we have this time together, that Spirit Rock supports us, that we support each other. We have this community and this very troubled world. And even as we each 
come here for support, for community. We know that everyone, everyone in the world wants connection, wants love, wants to be safe. And the Buddha said that everyone seeks happiness, but that we spend our time doing just the opposite of what brings happiness by grasping after pleasure and pushing away discomfort by creating conflict. So may our practice together be of benefit to all beings. May each of us cultivate love and awareness in our hearts that we can bring into the world and help to heal the world. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.